1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is our passage for today. We have just four verses to look at and study together. 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 to 16. And this is what God's word says. Paul writes, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. So as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but God's wrath has come upon them at last. Let's pray. Oh Lord, this is your word and your word for us today. May we receive it, Lord, with joy, with awe, with thankfulness. And we pray, Lord, your word, as it says here, would be at work among us. Do your plans for your work among your people today. As you said, Lord Jesus, you would build your church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. So we pray, Lord, that you would indeed build your church, strengthen it, add to it for your sake because of the cross and the resurrection. It's in your name we pray this. Amen. You could be seated. Well, one of the things that we, as a church, do a lot of, but maybe don't talk that much about, is the preaching of God's Word. Every Sunday, along with singing and praying, every Sunday someone stands in this spot and opens God's Word and reads from it and seeks to explain it, to proclaim it, to preach it. And we do that for no small span of time. If you're visiting with us, just FYI, we'll be at this for about 45 minutes or so. Well, it may be the thing that we do collectively as a church more than anything else. And yet, like I said, we don't often talk about what it is, why we do it, what's happening, what God is doing. Well, 1 Thessalonians 2, in verse 13 especially, is a passage that demands our attention about what preaching is and what it does and who it is that really speaks when God's word is faithfully proclaimed. That's not the only thing our passage deals with, but it is where it begins. Our passage really deals with three themes. So here's our outline. The word of God received, that's verse 13. The people of God opposed, verses 14 to 16. And then the wrath of God at hand in the last sentence of verse 16. So let's take those one at a time. First, the word of God received. Now Paul has already more than once in this letter to the Thessalonians 
written about the proclamation of the gospel that's been, well, both given and received. So back in chapter 1, verse 5, just remind yourself of these verses. Our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power, in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Or verse 6, you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Or as we saw last week in chapter 2, starting in verse 2, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God. Or just briefly in verse 9, we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. And now, as we see this week in verse 13, he puts a finer point on it. Let's read it again. We thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. A word of God spoken and explained by human messengers was received as what it really is, the word of God. Now, it's passages like that 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 lead the, the second Helvetic confession to say things like this. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Heinrich Bullinger wrote that in 1566. It's in the second Helvetic confession. The preaching of the word of God is the word of God. Now, notice it doesn't say... All preaching is the word of God. No, it's the preaching of the word of God. That's the word of God. Notice it doesn't say everything any preacher ever says is divine. Far from it. It's the preaching of the word of God that is the word of God. In other words, God's word faithfully and accurately Represented in preaching is God speaking afresh. As God's word is faithfully and accurately represented, God's word is re-presented, we could say. D.A. Carson, he calls the faithful preaching of the word of God re-revelation. Re-revelation, it's a bit of a made-up word, but thoughtfully so, of course. You see, preaching isn't new divine revelation, whereas we sort of, you know, pile up all the good sermons over the years and put them at the end of our Bibles and just keep adding more Bible because, you know, this sermon or that sermon was new revelation. No, that's not what he's saying. He's saying it's re Revelation, it's the re-revelation of God, by God. He puts it like this. D.A. Carson says, so when the word is re-announced, there is a sense in which God, who revealed himself by that word in the past, that's scripture, is re-revealing himself by that same word once again. 
Preachers must bear this in mind, Carson says. Their aim is more than to explain the Bible. They want the proclamation of God's word to be a revelatory event, a moment when God discloses himself afresh, a time when the people of God know that they have met with the living God. Now think of what that means for the task of preaching. Think of what that means for the preacher. It means the study of God's word leading up to a Sunday. I praise God that this church affords me the time, the time necessary to try to get up here and have something to say from God's word. I thank God for a church that that wants God's word. I think probably the, the quickest way for me to get fired is to start preaching things that aren't from God's word. So it means studying God's word and sticking to God's word when declaring it. It means that the preacher is not there to preach merely moving stories or providing cultural analysis or political dialogue or religious self-help or spiritual pep talks. Studying God's word, sticking to God's word. Someone anonymously, I don't even know the date, wrote this piece called How to Make a Man of God. There's a bit of hyperbole in it, but I think it captures the spirit of our passage quite well in what stands behind us. Let me read a bit from it. How to make a man of God. Fling him into his office. Tear the office sign from the door and nail on the sign, study. Lock him up with his books and his Bible. Slam him down on his knees before texts and broken hearts and the flick of lives of a superficial flock and a holy God. Throw him into the ring to box with God until he learns how short his arms are. Engage him to wrestle with God all the night through, and let him come out only when he's bruised and beaten into being a blessing. Stop his tongue forever tripping lightly over every non-essential Require him to have something to say before he dares break the silence. Bend his knees in the lonesome valley. Burn his eyes with weary study. Wreck his emotional poise with worry for God. And make him exchange his pious stance for a humble walk with God and man. Make him spend and be spent for the glory of God. Form a choir and raise a chant and haunt him with it night and day. Sir, we would see Jesus when at long last he dares assay the pulpit. Ask him if he has a word from God. If he does not, dismiss him. Tell him you can read the morning paper and digest the television commentary and think through the day's superficial problems and bless the baked beans better than he can. Command him not to come back until he's read and reread, written and rewritten, until he can stand up worn and forlorn and say, Thus saith the Lord. But then sit down before him and listen to the only word he has left 
God's word. Let them be totally ignorant of the town's gossip. Give him a chapter and order him to walk around it, camp on it, sup with it, and come at last to speak it backward and forward. And when he's burned out by the flaming word, when he's consumed at last by the fiery grace blazing through him, and is finally transferred from earth to heaven, bear him away gently, blow a muted trumpet, lay him down softly, place a two-edged sword in his coffin, and raise the tomb triumphant, for he was a brave soldier of the word, and ere he died and had become a man of God. Think of what 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 means for the hearing and the receiving of God's word as it's preached. It means that your role and my role when I'm on the receiving end of others preaching, and really, by the way, let me just say as as a side note, uh, the preacher, when he preaches, is also a recipient of that same preaching. Um, I'm preaching to myself, not just in my study throughout the week, but in the delivery itself. And so as we receive God's word, we have to remember that uh, we're not there to be judge and jury. Now, we're to be Bereans. You know about that, right? Acts 17, there the Bereans were noble, it says, because they received what the apostles taught them, and they tested it with Scripture to see if these things were true. That's noble. That's good. We're all to be Bereans in that sense. We should all, we could say, see it for ourselves from the Bible. And and that's why faithful preaching will do some measure of showing your own homework, you could say. Remember that in math class, how you you had to have the right answer, but you couldn't just put down the right answer. You had to show your work. Well, decent preaching does something along the same lines of showing the work so that we can all see that it's coming from the Bible. But being a Berean is different than listening to preaching with skepticism, with um, some measure of superiority, with suspicion of... It's different than evaluating it like we're on the panel for the preaching version of America's Got Talent or American Idol. When politicians give important speeches, the pollsters or sometimes the news outlets, they might gather a sample audience to listen to it together and they might gauge on a second-by-second level. They might gauge the reaction to the speech. I've seen it where people are given sort of a knob as they listen and watch this speech, and they turn to the left for negative, they turn to the right for positive, and they can turn it a certain degree to to be more excited or less excited, be more mad or less mad. And that data can be charted and compared person to person to see what worked and what didn't and and what was powerful and, and what was boring and, you know, what, what connected across party lines. Well, God's word preached isn't to be treated in that kind of subjective and preferential kind of way. Or to put it in more stark terms, 
If you've seen the movie The Gladiator or perhaps any movie um, that has a, a depiction of the Roman emperor, you might remember that you know, deciding the fate of one of the gladiators, the Roman emperor would put out his thumb sideways in suspense of whether it was going to go up and the gladiator lived or it was going to go down and the gladiator died. Well, no preacher should feel like he's preaching to a bunch of sideway thumbs, right? Like this, like it's just held out. Come on, what are you going to do, preacher? Let's see. No. When I praise God that at Desert Springs Church, I don't feel at all like I preach to a bunch of sideways thumbs, and I never thought I would word it just like that, preaching to a bunch of sideways thumbs. But there it is. That's quotable, I suppose. Like Paul, who could write of these Thessalonians, we thank God constantly for this, that you receive the word of God as the word of God. So you, church, should be encouraged to know that when we have guest preachers in, almost without fail, they comment to me about how easy it is to preach to you, how well you receive the word. And I see it week in and week out. May we continue in that. May we not take that for granted. And, and what, whatever is true of us generally and corporately, may it also be true of us individually. And, and what is generally true of us individually, may it be, may it be consistently true or more true. Because I, I know myself, I, I can listen to someone's preaching and, and then slip into some sort of critical spirit that is not receiving the word of God as the word of God. But this is how we grow. This is how God works in us. You see verse 13, you receive the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. The word works. This is how God works in us and on us. It's through his word. And so having received that word for the first time when we became Christians, we just keep receiving it. It's ongoing. That same word is at work in you. Present tense. So may we come on Sunday morning with a sort of spirit of anticipation and expectation, not only that the word of God will be preached, but that word works, and God will work. He may not work like you thought he would. We should probably be careful to not predetermine what we think we need to hear this week. There may be times where you feel like you need a word of encouragement, and our passage is more a direct cut of conviction. Perhaps that's what you need more than you thought you knew. We should come to hear God's word preached and experience God's word preached, believing that verse 13 here is true, whether we feel like it's true or not. We should pray for the preaching of God's word. We should pray for the preparation of the preacher and the sermon. We should be praying beforehand for God to work in wondrous ways when it happens. 
And of course, we should give ourselves to this word that works beyond just Sunday mornings, right? That's not the only way we take in the Bible. It's an important way, yes, but it's far from the only way. Get more Bible in you. You know, the Bible is likened to food and drink. And some of us only have one meal a week. And that's just not healthy. You're just not, you're not made for that. There's a reason the analogy of Bible intake is eating because we need it. It nourishes us. Some of us have gotten used to fasting from the Bible. Our stomachs don't growl anymore like they used to. But get more in, and you'll see. You'll want more. You'll need more. It feeds you. You keep growing. That's how it works. And also, just lastly, put verse 13 to work in your personal evangelism, your witness in the world, in giving the gospel to non-Christians. You see, this isn't just for apostles or preachers, and it's not just about Sunday morning sermons. As the word of God is faithfully represented, regardless of the context and regardless of the messenger, that is the word of God. As you give the word of God, it is the word of God. It has his authority. It it may not convince them. It, It may not win them over. It may not yet. But... You don't have to wonder whether it works, and you don't have to wonder whether it has authority. It does. So first, the word of God received. Now secondly, the people of God opposed. The people of God are opposed. You see, when the word of God is proclaimed, as we know from experience and the scriptures, some will receive it, others will reject it. Among those who reject it, some will outright oppose it, and they will even oppose the messenger who brought it to them. So verse 14, you brothers became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out out. Stop there for now. This is really similar to what Paul wrote in chapter 1 verse 6. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And now he writes similarly but with added detail and in added witnesses or added examples we could say. Really he's here stacking up the examples of righteous suffering in order to encourage these persecuted Thessalonian Christians to encourage them in the solidarity of their suffering. You see, just as the Jews, Christian Jews back in Judea, suffered at the hands of their Jewish countrymen. And if you want examples of that, go looking at Acts 4. Acts 5, Acts 6, Acts 7, Acts 8, verse 1, the persecution was turned up and the church was scattered. And God used the scattering of the church 
due to persecution, actually for the scattering of the gospel into new regions. So just as Christian Jews in Judea suffered at the hands of their Jewish countrymen, and just as before that they killed the Lord Jesus, Yes, it was the Romans that actually crucified Jesus, but it was the Jews that handed him over to the Romans and demanded the crucifixion. Remember, Pilate washed his hands. Your blood is it's on your hands, not mine. And of course, the blood was still on his hands. I mean, of course, he was a wimp and he, he, he sought peace in all the wrong ways, but there's no denying the Jewish leaders were intent on Jesus' death for years before the day he actually died. And before the cross, just think of how, as it says here, that they opposed and killed the prophets of old. So in Stephen's sermon in Acts chapter 7, he says to the religious leaders, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. And then they would... Right after that, pick up stones and murder another prophet-like man, Stephen. And just as Paul and Silas and Timothy were driven out, as it says here, referring to Acts 17, when they were driven out of Thessalonica and chased down into the next city of Berea, the, the examples are stacked, implying so Thessalonians, you too are suffering similarly at the hands of your own countrymen, the Romans. The point is that they shouldn't be surprised. They stand in a long line of persecuted saints. That's the recurring theme in this family tree. As Jesus told his disciples, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they hated me, they will hate you. He said, parents and brothers and sisters will turn you into the authorities for you to be killed. You'll be hated for my namesake. That's what we see. We see recorded in the book of Acts. There's proclamation, some believe. Some don't. Of those who don't, some are really angry about it. They'll lock them up. They'll beat them. They'll imprison them. Or they'll throw them out of the city. And they walk on down the road to give the gospel someplace else. Paul was in the end, we learned from church history, he was beheaded. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned to death, as was Stephen before. John was exiled on Patmos until his death. Thomas was tortured and speared. 
then burned. The Old Testament prophet Isaiah was sawn in two. And this is our heritage. These are our brothers. This is the family tree. If you think, well, not me, I live in America, well, you'd be right. It's, it is pretty easy here. We have a kind of relative freedom that's unusual compared with the rest of Christian history. And so thank God for whatever freedoms you have. Thank God for meeting here this morning, not under some sort of cloak or, you know, behind closed curtains. We didn't hide to get here. We weren't worried when we drove here or walked here. Praise God for that. And let's put to use those freedoms. Let's put to use those freedoms for the gospel. Paul prayed that an open door would be given to him for the proclamation of the gospel. And what open doors do we have? There are a lot of open doors. Let's not think that those open doors will always be open. Let's not think that the tide will never turn in this country. In fact, it seems to be turning in this country against Christians, against people who believe what we believe. And so let's be ready. Let's learn from and pray for those brothers and sisters in other parts of the world where where persecution is severe. And let's ready ourselves to possibly find ourselves in their very footsteps in days ahead. And until then, let's not think that only deadly persecution, only violent persecution is the only kind of persecution. We don't want to, in any way, think that it's all the same, that any kind of persecution, whether it's a frown or uh, murder, is the same. But we also don't want to dismiss or downplay that being mocked, being disowned by parents, losing friends, being wrongly fired, misrepresented, this is all potentially forms of persecution that many of us in America can and have faced. Jesus said, blessed are you when men revile you for my name's sake. Revile, make fun of. Peter, in 1 Peter 4, he, he writes, the world is surprised when you no longer go along with them in debauchery and partying and sinning and sex and all that, and they revile and malign you. So that kind of thing can happen in an American high school or college today in America, just just like anywhere. So where that happens, when that happens, remember, they killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets, and they drove out the apostles. And know this, it displeases God when they do that. Verse 15, this displeases God. They displease God and oppose all mankind. How so? Well, verse 16, by hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles that they might be saved. 
You see, that's God's plan, that the Gentiles might be saved, that salvation would reach an innumerable multitude from every tongue and tribe. That's God's plan. And to oppose the spread of that plan is to oppose God. It displeases him. It opposes all mankind. It is unloving. It is opposing what people need most. They need that message. And some will be the happy recipients of that message. And some will be happy to reject it. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul talks about this kind of fork in the road thing. He says, through us, God is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. There's the fork in the road. All humanity is divided right there. We all know Christians stink. And some think they stink bad and some think that smells pretty good. Who is on the Lord's side? Who will serve the king? Says one old hymn. Or as Jesus put it, he who is not with me is against me. And being against him will go from bad to worse apart from God's intervention. It'll go from bad to worse, as Paul put it, from death to death. Hindering us from speaking, and Paul goes on, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins. Now, what does that mean, to fill up the measure of their sins? Well, I think the answer is found in Matthew 23 where Jesus is addressing the scribes and Pharisees. He calls them hypocrites. And in verse 31, he says, Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you'll flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That's what's meant by they will always fill up the measure of their sins. They killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets. They drove out the apostles. They seek to hinder the spread of the gospel. This displeases God. It opposes his plan and his purposes. It's against all mankind. They're filling up the measure of their sins just as Jesus foretold that they would. Which leads thirdly to the wrath of God at hand the wrath of god at hand in this final sentence of our passage but wrath has come upon them at last now this little sentence at the end it's actually the most difficult of all that we're looking at this morning and so let's not let up in 
in receiving the word right now, in, in accepting the word right now. Let's do that thoughtfully and carefully and make sure we understand what this is and is not saying. Let me ask two questions of this short sentence. Who and when? Who is it about? It says them. Wrath has come upon them at last. Who's the them? Well, it's the Jews, not the Jews as a whole, but specifically those Jews who killed the prophets, killed the Lord Jesus, and drove out apostles. Remember that here, Paul is using the Jewish opposition to Christ as an example to encourage the persecuted Thessalonians as they face persecution from their countrymen, the Romans. So in one sense, this is very specific. Paul is talking about certain Jews and what they did. In another sense, what he's saying is true of any anti-Christian persecution because he's simply using the Jewish kind of persecution as an example. So the who, it's specific, but it's also broad. In the when, wrath has come upon them at last. Has come upon them. Past tense. Why past tense, you might wonder. And here there are a few possibilities. Perhaps this is like you find in the Old Testament prophets where they would state something about the future but put it in past tense because it was so certain to come to pass. It's called a prophetic perfect, if you want the technical term. Perhaps that's what he's doing here. Perhaps he's saying that this wrath that's come upon them is imminent. It hasn't happened yet, but it's almost there. It's soon. Probably not that. And it could be that he has in mind sort of a now and not yet. We often find that tension of now and not yet in the Bible. And this could be one of those places where there's a sense in which the wrath has come upon them. And there's another sense in which there's still wrath to come. And I think that's right. Do you know that the cross and resurrection is not just salvation, it is also judgment. We think of the cross as Christians, as our salvation, and rightly so. But it is also a signal of judgment for those who did not believe that Jesus is who he said he was. That passage I read in Matthew 23 was undoubtedly speaking of a judgment that would befall the Jewish leaders in Jesus' day. Or as Jesus put it in Matthew 21, that the religious leader's rejection of the true cornerstone would mean that one day they're broken by that cornerstone. The cross signified their unbelief and their rejection, their judgment. In that sense, wrath has come upon them specifically those first century Jews who were willing parties in the rejection of Christ. But the wrath of God is currently upon others who reject that Christ. Is currently, present tense. 
You see, in John 3, Jesus says, whoever believes in him, sorry, John says of Jesus, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Or in verse 36, he says similarly, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. The wrath of God is currently upon all who refuse Jesus. And now and not yet, the wrath of God is coming in its fullness We don't know when, but it's coming. There there is a final reckoning. And how could there be otherwise? Consider the necessity of a final judgment. I, I mean, Hitler, all those deaths, and he just shoots himself, in the cell, and that's, that's it. He just, in his bunker, he just kills himself. That's it. That's not just. I, I hope that you sense that there are things in this world which in this life and in this world, there's, the justice has not been met. There are murderers who have not yet been discovered. There are rapists who have not yet been told on. There's a necessity of divine judgment. John Lennon encouraged this thought experiment. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy to imagine, he said. No hell below us. Above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine it. And imagine all the people living for today the way they want to live for today. So pedophiles living for today. ISIS living for today. Murderers living for today. Drunk drivers living for today. But there's no heaven and there's no hell, which means there's no end time justice. And this justice, by the way, it's God's justice, so it's right. There's the wisdom of this justice that can be trusted. There's a finality to this justice which can be somewhat encouraging to those who have suffered at the hands of others at great sin. There's a personal personalness to this divine judgment. After all, it's wrath. It's not just judgment. It's not just penalty. God's angry. Sin isn't some violation of an arbitrary rule that's outside of God. It's him. He's the law. He's the rule. He's the judge. But there is the escapability of this divine judgment that's coming. So back in chapter 1, verse 10, 
Paul could write of Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come, and there is the possibility of deliverance from the wrath to come. Or in words of 2 Thessalonians 1, listen to this. There, a day is coming, and it will be either a day of doom or a day of deliverance. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So either God's wrath is received or it is removed. In the Bible, we call this substitution Jesus was a substitute sacrifice. That's what the cross was all about. He was making a payment for sin for all those who would ever believe that he paid for their sins upon the cross. Their wrath was received by him. That wrath would be removed from us. Substitution. And so Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, we... Every Christian in this room wants to say this to you if you're not yet a Christian. We are ambassadors for Christ. We represent him. God is making his appeal to you through us. And so we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. And here's how we're reconciled to God. It was for our sake that he, God, made him Jesus to be sin or to bear sin. Him who knew no sin, so he deserved no judgment, but he bore that judgment so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He had all righteousness, we had none, but he took our debt and paid it to the full that we might have all his riches. If you simply believe it, if you simply receive that word that I just spoke to you as the word of God. I didn't come up with this. I, none of us would have come up with this. This is what God says. This is what Jesus did. This is what he offers you today. Receive it, accept it as the word of God. This is why the Thessalonians can be called believers in verse 13. That's what identifies them. This is what they're about. They are believers. They are ones who trust in what this word says and what this God does. What this God does is he saves. Paul went about speaking that the Gentiles might be saved. And today you're hearing that without any hindrance. Praise God. Will you receive it? Will God's wrath be removed? Or will you receive it yourself in the end? Christian, 
you have received the word of God as the very word of God. Praise God for that. And keep receiving his word like that. Keep hearing his word. Keep accepting it. This is how he works in you. And keep relaying his word to others, especially those who haven't yet come to hear it and know it and believe it and receive it. Don't be surprised when they don't. The people of God are opposed. They're they're demonized. Don't be surprised. Don't be alarmed. God knows you're in a long line of persecuted saints. But their opposition is futile. There is a judgment to come. There is a reckoning. In the end, God will make all things right. His word will be spread among the Gentiles, not in spite of persecution, but often through it. Paul can say in Philippians 1 that his imprisonment meant that others are more bold to speak the gospel. How is that? Because it shows that this thing's worth suffering for. It's true. It's real. The blood of the martyrs, it's been said, is the seed of the church. May it be so, and may God use our words in days ahead, whether in days of peace or in days of greater persecution. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word today. We thank you for it afresh. We believe again, Lord, that you speak it afresh. Help us, Lord, to believe that. Help us to live like that. Help us, Lord, to come to church like that. Help us, Lord, to speak on your behalf with the kind of confidence that should befit a living and active word that cuts like a sword, according to Hebrews 4. Lord, help us to trust your word. It is sweet to simply take you at your word. May some in this room do that even for the first time today. May every Christian in this room, Lord, once again trust in your word. Trust all that you've said. Trust you to speak in order, Lord, that you might build up and strengthen according to your word and for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.